0: I'd like you to open to Romans chapter 12, an old familiar passage of Scripture there. I want to bring these comments this week on some time I had alone with myself this past week. I like doing that. Sometimes I don't have to try to do that, but just getting alone in a man room, let's say, a place where you go to think and meditate, sometimes pray, but mostly to listen kind of underwent unexpectedly, just begin thinking about things in a different way. That is, I began to evaluate my life, just begin to look at me as a person in the last 40 years of my life. I had read something in the Bible, heard a comment from somebody, it made me think, so I got along and began thinking about it. You know, the Bible tells us to examine ourselves and that we need to take stock of ourselves. Begin to ask myself, you know, how much of your life has been in the fulfillment of the will of God? Ask myself that. Well, you know, we as Christian people have learned to seek a pat on the back and to be found approving to a speaker and everybody's okay and we're all good and everybody... That's one of the reasons we like to feel good at going to church because we want to be told everything we're doing is okay, that nobody's doing anything wrong, that no sin is outlined, nobody feels bad because something may not be right with God in what you've done or said. But I begin to think, you know, you, you start dealing with yourself and your conscience won't let you lie. You can't cheat, you can't lie, you can't deceive yourself. Well, you can deceive yourself, but all the ways you try to convince yourself, well, I mean, I look back, you know, I went here and went there and I did this and I did that. And the question, how much of that was in response to a direct revelation from God to you about him wanting you to do that? We've learned to do a lot of things. Christianity has invented crosses and designed services that we can all do. And we get approvals and stars and applause for so much that we do. The more I thought of it, the less I had any applause. It was little praise. You know, the phone rang, well here, would you go to Europe, go to Germany? Well, I imagine. Well, yeah, I've never done it, that'd be exciting is it the lord's will? Well, the phone rang, didn't it? that's the way we justify the lord where well, the phone rang, didn't it? my phone doesn't ring unless god's in it. right. right. and so you go and you do what you've learned to do. or you repeat things you said before. they're good things, nothing wrong with that. maybe somebody's life got touched or you got a call to go to australia. I went there three times, or to go to India, or to go down to South America. All these opportunities, you know, the phone rang. I passed up a trip to Singapore, uh, New Zealand, and, and a couple of other spots because really I was too busy at the time. It just didn't work out. But I asked myself, how much of what you have done, and I could ask you about your current life, any of us, any of us, all of us, How much of our life is prompted or is in a response to the will of God? How much? Because you see, the only thing that will matter in life, and quite frankly, the only thing that does matter is the will of God. Outside of the will of God, what can we do that's right? We can do a lot of things that we would call right. But doesn't the Bible say there is a way that seems right? But the end of that way makes you very uncomfortable because if the way is not the way of God, the will of God being brought forth, it's death. That God lavishes no praise on anything outside of his will. And there's a lot of things the Bible says is the will of God. We sing about his will, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. The Bible has much revelation about things that we all do, to some degree. Maybe more with more gusto and some like praise than others do, but we do have a responder and we do respond. But I wonder how much of the activity of our life Looking at history, the design of the church as we come to know it, the structure of the church, the organization of the church, the names given, how much of that is the will of God? See, we don't want to think that what we're doing or we were in big some structure, something that this really is not designed after the will of God, but after the will of a man. Or it seemed good, it seemed right. But what good is it? In the end, does anybody have a relationship with God outside of the will of God? Anybody? And we can join the church and tell each other, we're all related to God because we're here, aren't we? We sing songs, we give, and we share, and we read, and we assemble twice a week. And Well, of course. But we have to ask ourselves, I do. Maybe I think too much. Maybe I ponder, or as Psalm 1 said, meditate on things too much. But if I want to stand clean before the Lord in the end, just like you, i got to make sure my life is in harmony with his will. Because if what I'm doing is not his will, there is no praise, there's no reward, there's nothing. So the supreme importance to me and you, us, is What is the will of God for me? Now, I want to title the message, God's Will and His Servant, because I like to think we are His servants. We are told that we are. We have read that we are. We say that we are. There's a way to know if we are or not, and some of that knowledge is not comfortable And look, Christianity is designed, modern Christianity is designed for comfort and happiness, to make all these people happy, to make them all comfortable. And to do that, you have to leave out uncomfortable, unhappy themes. But what good are we if we please ourselves in this life and wind up not pleasing God? For we read in the Bible that we are made for his pleasure. We're not on this earth to establish and make a name or become somebody. As Christians, we are here to be fully devoted, surrendered and dedicated to God. Period. And that God has a right to do with us whatever he wants, however he wants. That what we commit to God, we make no claim to anymore. It's all his. We released ourselves. We belong to him. I think Jesus taught us to pray this. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Because I'm asking you the question, if it's not God's will that we do, then what good is what we do? If it's God's will, it will always bear fruit. It will always bring pleasure to God because I think by definition... That's what the will of God is, is that which brings pleasure to God, that which pleases God, that which God desires on this earth. And when he saved us, the one thing he wants from us is to do his will, just like Jesus in John 5. He said, you know, I didn't come to this world to do what I thought was noble and great and wonderful. I came to do his will. That's my whole purpose. The only reason to come was to do the will of the Father, which was to save his people. I've come to accomplish that. All the discomfort I went through, all the rejection I went through, all the difficulties that I went through, and the pain and the sorrow at the end of it all, I did it because it was the Lord's will. Even as Peter writes, it is the will of God in some cases that we suffer. And nobody wants to do that, so we arrange our lives as much as we can to avoid that. All controversy, going somewhere we might be attacked verbally or any other way, or foreign countries or something because, oh no, we don't want that. See, we want your blessings and your praise, but on our terms. And God says, no such thing exists. You want to find His way, and then you want to commit yourself to His way. And I know you agree with that. It's just not easy. Now in Romans concerning the will of God in Romans chapter 12 in the first verse. This is probably referencing the Old Testament sacrifices probably taking us back to review the Old Testament method and system of having our sins covered over. Sacrifices. He said in verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you here this morning present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, the sacrifice died, but it was costly because you couldn't just go out to a flock of sheep or a bull or a goat. You couldn't just go grab one and bring it in there and like many would. Well, look, it's a life in it. I mean, it's breathing. It's alive. It has blood in it, doesn't it? Okay. This is going to be a substitute. It's going to die in my place. It's a picture of course of what Jesus did, but he wouldn't go out there and just grab a, an animal and take it to the priest because the priest would say, I don't accept this. You can't bring that to God and call that a sacrifice. It's blemished. That lamb or that animal has a flaw. Has a broken leg, has a scar across its face, or something is not right about it. We're going to have to look around here to find one, and the best one's going to cost you. But you can offer nothing else. You either give it your best or you offer nothing. Because God doesn't accept anything you bring Him, it has to be according to His will or His way. So you get an animal and you find one, the priest examines it, it's okay, so you bring that animal, and it dies. It's blood is shed It convulses until its blood is gone and then death takes place and in place of you dying an animal died for you and Now you can properly come before God again But there must be an intermediary between you and God because as a sinner you can't so this lamb Takes the place So it's costly now. He said you in the New Testament You present yourself It's an act of your will. Nobody can do this for you. It's got to be a choice. You present your bodies, your person, your being, a living sacrifice unto God. Like Paul said, once I die daily, you remember that? This is not going to be easy. It's not always going to be pleasant. It has wonderful rewards and a great mental game. But you've got to be willing to do it. Offer yourself, commit yourself, dedicate or consecrate or surrender yourself unto God as a living sacrifice. And it means that once you present yourself to God, just like that animal in the Old Testament, once you present yourself unto God, essentially you release all claims to yourself. You are now no longer yourself. You no longer belong to you. You belong to God. Are you with me? You are the purchased possession of God. You have been bought, as First Corinthians 6 talks about, you have been bought with the price. Now, the price was the blood of Jesus. Now, in light of that, in response to that, You offer yourself to God the same way. You give yourself to God without reservation. Hold back nothing. Let yourself be in the hands of God, whatever the Almighty wants to do with you. You have no more claims to yourself, no more anything. You're submitted to him. This message in the old days was called total commitment. Everybody loved it until they began to explain it. Then I don't know about that, but it's truth. But you offer yourself a living sacrifice. And the next word he uses is holy. So I ask myself, concerning a holy life, you live one? If you were to measure yourself by what you preach and what you've heard, would you say that you're a holy person? Hmm. That's pretty tough, isn't it? Because one of the things that God said with all the blessings of Deuteronomy 28, the first 15 verses, one of the things he said was, and you shall be a holy nation along with all the blessings that God is willing to give. Not that you ask for them. He just said he'll give these to you. And he said, and you shall be a holy people under the Lord. Holy means you're committed, consecrated. It's something that you do. It's a part of sanctification. You set yourself apart unto God and whatever he wants. You make yourself the property of God. And then in order to do this, there has to be without blemish and without anything else. And then there's a commitment to live according to his word. This is what it would mean to live holy. And then the next thing you see in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, acceptable to God. Let me ask you a question. I'm just going to ask you because you got a Bible and you're looking at it. Is there any other way we can live in place of that? Is any other way a substitute? Acceptable unto God. These are hard questions. At least I asked. They were to me acceptable to God are you acceptable to God does your life reveal that that there's a complete surrender of your mind and your heart to God have you been willing to walk away from all the attachments of the world in order to be what God wants you to be Are you holding back? Is there fear in your life? Is there something you haven't dealt with? We could all be in the process of change. I don't think this happens just all at once. It's a growth unto this. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is a holy life that alone is acceptable to God. And he wound up in saying at the end of Romans chapter 12 and 1, he said, this is your what kind of service? Your reasonable service. It would be like me saying to you, this is what I want. If, On behalf of God, I would say, you know, this is what God wants. He wants you to be committed. He wants you to take your hands off your life and quit complaining and let God do with you whatever he wants to. Quit wanting to be noticed and just become what he wants you to be, just a member of his body. He knows everything about you. He'll reward you. But while you're here... Your dedication and commitment is not to self-exaltation, but as a member of a group at which you do your best to make others better than yourself. Whoa. This is your reasonable service. Look what you get in reward at the end of this life. Look what he's got for you. Eternity. Forever. Now, I mean, now in this life, we are in preparation for that life. And he says, this is your reasonable service. Now, all of this picture of a special, dedicated, committed, holy person living what God wants. Notice verse two, which is a part of it. And be not conformed to this world. He said, but be ye transformed. Let me ask you this if there's anything in the church that ought to be a process, shouldn't it be a transformation of the lives of all the members of the church that we are being changed? Are we not? Are we not supposed to be in the process of being changed? There's no such thing as religion with God. That is where you come, you take a seat in a church, you join, and you sit there till you die. In what way is that the will of God? You may be in a church, you may have a place to sit, but God will be busy working on you, busy dealing with you, busy refining you, busy in preparation for you because we all have something that God has for us to do. All of us. There is some function in the church that we're all a part of. We have to learn that. That's why teaching is so important. He mentions knowledge so much through the knowledge, by the knowledge, know him, know me. We have to learn because learning is when the conscience comes into play and you begin to see things God's way. And then that conscience begins to cast judgment on what you're doing. That's not God's way. And it bothers you and it should. We call it conviction. Then you get alone and you start thinking about it. And you think, boy, oh, God, Lord, Lord. And you begin to realize that God's way is much bigger than what you've known it. It's more costly than what you've ever been willing to pay. And a whole lot of things you might realize, a whole lot of things you've done, places you've gone, might not have been the will of God at all. You might have enjoyed things in this life, but it's still empty. You travel to a place once a year and preach twice. You think you're going to change a place? Nothing wrong with preaching. But there's more to it than that. I think we like to get out and go and preach to as many people as we can. But the only way preaching is going to really do any good, I believe, is in a local assembly week after week after week after year after year. It's got to be a growth. And all the people that are growing have to be constantly reminded like we do that we are to be Christ-like in our lives. Nothing else is acceptable. We can't do anything right unless we know what the will of God is. Nothing. I have to know his will. How am I going to find out? How can I know it? I mean, like that. Well, first of all, is you've got to let go of the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind's your enemy. Your mind is what makes substitutes. Your mind is what tells you that you're all right because you go to church and you're busy and you give and you help and you painted and you did something. You have merited something, haven't you? All the works you've done and God say all your works are as filthy rags. What? Yeah. All your efforts at pleasing God, all the things you have thought of to do that surely God would like and all churches do it are as filthy rags. Anything that's not his will is unacceptable. You mean, yeah, that too. So you see, you got to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're thinking wrong. Your thoughts, God said, are not my thoughts. And consequently, your ways are not my ways. There is a way you've designed things that you like, and it certainly seems like it's good enough. And so you justify this being God's will by saying, well, after all, I mean, after all, we, uh, we did all this for the Lord. Don't we sing? Don't we? I, mean, are we not, uh, I mean, are we not doing something right? Man likes to design things and then say that God is honored with all of this. He builds a building. Man will build a building to meet in so we can learn and teach. And he decorates that thing with a million dollars worth of refinements so we can learn. We have to ask ourselves, is this the will of God? Is that the will of God? A whole lot of what goes on, I don't think is the will of God. People think it is, and they like it to be, and they want it to be, so they act like it is, but it's not. The will of God quite often is personal, and it shows up in what that inspiration of God does in a person's life or in a people's life. He said in verse two, the purpose of the renewing of your mind is so that one thing so that you can prove and know beyond the shadow of a doubt what the will of God is. Number one, first verse, you submit yourself to God. Secondly, he said, you submit to his transforming work in you. Is that not right? Do we not first commit ourselves to God? And then secondly, when we do that, does he not then test us by giving us his way to replace our way? He said, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. So he begins to, the psalmist said, teach me thy ways that I may walk in what? That's his will. There is nothing else acceptable. We don't like that. I don't think many Christians would accept that, but it's true. The only thing acceptable to God for man to embrace is his will. Not his lofty designs, not his "woo," but the will of God. And whatever we want to undertake, we have to ask ourselves, is this the will of God? Can I know by either a revelation or a certain inward Conviction, will my conscience or heart bear witness to what I'm doing is the will of God? Because if it's not, it's best that you don't. But if there's a release on the inside, yes, then go for it. Do it. But there's nothing more important than for us to know the will of God. Now, turn to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13 The will of God, how important is it? It's everything. Let me tell y'all something. There is nothing right about anybody in this room or what any of us in this room are doing, any of us, apart from the will of God. If it is the will of God for me to do what I'm doing, and I'm doing it, then this is what pleases God in my life. It would bring pleasure to God for me to do his will same is true with you whatever you're doing romans 12 that we looked at a while ago the verses that follow that is all about relationships about esteeming others is better than yourself loving people doing good helping people let love be without dissimulation be kindly affection one to another be not slothful in business fervent in spirit serving the lord Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulations, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the of saints, blessing those that persecute you, rejoicing with them that rejoice, weeping with them that weep, being of the same mind one to another. This is the will of God. This is the antithesis or the opposite of the world and its ways. And here we are feeling, well, somebody will take advantage of us if we do that. You trust God. You trust God, because I'll get to it in just a moment, but there's two outstanding things about God's will upon which Christianity hinges. One, without his will, there's no relationship with God. And without his will, there's no faith. Because you base your faith on what you're doing, thinking, well, that's good enough. That's not the will of God. You might say that the will of God is a relational word, because I relate to God on the basis of what he said. Not what I think, but on what he said. You know, I've said years back that most people worship a conceptual God. They have a concept of God. They have an idea and they see God like this. And so they design their life approaching that. And that must be right. And it's never occurred to them that God will reveal himself to you in his word if you look for it. But if you don't want to look and see what God wants in your life personally, you'll just live your life and, and do as good as you can. We have a saying today, well, I think you just do the best you can with what you got and you'll be all right. Who said that? You do the best for what you got. Maybe you're not looking for more. Maybe you don't want any more. You've already missed it. There's people today that are trying to live in the light they had 20 years ago and they've lost half of that and they're trying to depend on that and they've gone nowhere. But something has replaced their old drive and zeal. It's probably the world, back into the world, trying to get and obtain and have more and looking forward to having something and going places and enjoying life. The will of God is that you submit yourself unto God. That you study to show yourself approved unto God a workman. That you hold back nothing from the Lord of what you offer him. You give it to him, it's his. If he wants to send you to Clawhammer, Texas, he can send you there. If he wants to send you down in the bottom of Peru, he can send you there. You took off all restraints to your life. I belong to God. Now, as a part of that commitment, I've got to have my mind renewed. I've got to learn who he is and how his word speaks. And every time he says something, I have to subscribe to it and submit myself to it because this is how I please God. This is why it's easier now to relate to other people, to see other people's needs. You see your own. You see your own. It's easy to love people when you see how much God really has loved you in spite of you. It's easy to care for other people when you see how much he has cared for you in spite of your life. He's not done. He's long-suffering. And the work he started, he will finish. But I promise you this, that the work will bring to a conclusion in your life the performance of his will, his ways for you. Have you found Philippians 2 yet? Verse 13, for God is at work. Now, that word is, we get our word energize from that word. It means effort. It means that when God says to be energized, He said that He is going to work effectually in you. You remember the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much? A prayer that's energized. A prayer that the Spirit of God is working on you in. Put your whole heart and soul into this. Come on, all you got. Look at it that way with God at work in you. You and me, whom he calls nothings, nobodies. Paul himself said, I am nothing. Paul said in Ephesians 3, he said, I am less than the least of the saints. He said, I am the least of the apostles. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. I have no picture of myself as somebody who's important. I don't see anything about me that is, oh, what would we do without you, Brother Hamill? I see, Brother Paul, He said, I see nothing like that about my life. I am nothing more than a human being that was destined for hell and God saved me. And he puts in me something that I want to live my life doing, preaching the gospel. He even said, woe is me if I don't. So we have here, God is at work, energizing himself inside of his people. I hope this is going on in you. I do that God is in there stirring things up not leaving you alone Doing two things specifically God is at work in you both to what? To make known to you his will To show it to you make you aware of it His will working in you his good pleasure It is God at work in you both to will And he said, and to do of his good pleasure. That's the desire of God. Would you agree with me this morning, those of you here and those of you that are watching, that it is the will of God that the work he is doing in us is the work we respond to? Is he doing something in you? Is there something going on? I don't mean is he making you a, a prophet Or some great one. He might want you just to be an intercessor. The will of God for you is to pray. He's made you keenly aware of people's needs. You just see things that other people don't see in people's lives. You don't even have to go ask him. It just seems like he shows you things. You're sensitive to things that God is doing. And he quickens you when he shows you things. This work of God quickens you to respond to that. You find yourself praying for people. You don't know anything about them. I remember I was telling Paul earlier today that when I was down in Ecuador as a church on the backside of town, I have no clue where I was. I had no GPS, but I don't know if I could have gotten out of where I was with the GPS. And the ladies there meet every morning, still dark, a little group of them, every day, and they pray. Every morning. And the lady who was my translator was one of those people. And she said, one of her trips to America or something, she heard of me. Somehow or another, it's a name or a tape or something, or somebody mentioned something. And she brought my name back to that prayer group. She said, we've been praying for you for years, every morning, for years. For years. I remember few years back, I was in Louisiana with Brother Menard. We went to visit a house. A lady there, she'd been on our tape list. We went by to see her, and a bubbly, delightful, sparkle-eyed lady. And she said, Brother Hamlet, it's so nice to see you and have you in my home. So I've been praying for you for like 15 or 20 years, every day. And I I humble myself, and I think there's a lot of people praying for me. I'm sure I'd be gone if they weren't. I mean, God saved a—I don't know what he saved. I grew up in a pool hall. That was my life. I understand that side of the world. I do. I was there, been around it, know what it's like. And he brought me out of that, and I look back at what I've been brought out of. I have no desire for any reason ever to go back to that. I'd just soon die and be over, done with it, than to ever turn back to that because there's nothing there. That's death. And so he brings us out to a place, begins to open our eyes to see wonderful things in his word then he gives us this stirring on the inside God does and the working on the inside of you both to will, not only to show you his, but for you to want his, to do his will, to will and to do of his good pleasure. Can you imagine God inside of you so having the control of your life by your consent that he does whatever he wants to with you? That God would vehicle, tabernacle in you and vehicle with you? You like that? That God could find a place in your life where he's in control? That you don't restrict his ownership in any way? You don't let fear stop? You don't let, ooh, what would happen? You just let him have his way in you. You're learning who he is, and you're learning to move, and that still small voice is beginning to train you. And Wouldn't that be wonderful? Trust me, it really would for you to be so surrendered to God that he has his way, but even more that God being able to prompt you, tap you on the shoulder in those various times in life and you know what to do. Remember Jesus said, I always do my father's will. There was never a time in his earthly ministry that he did not know what to do whether to walk away and say nothing or to stand in the bunch in the midst of them and call them whitewashed tombs. Jesus always knew what to do. He was never helpless, hopeless, or sad. I don't think he was ever fully depressed. I think he had his trials and his moments. I think the garden was a real difficult time. But he was led to the slaughter as a lamb without sin died on the behalf of his people, a horrible death, terrible death. And came back in the upper room amidst his disciples and said, if I did it, you could do it. He said, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. As the Father sent me, so send I you. You go do what I did. Isn't that good? That's what we're supposed to do. Teach me thy ways, O Lord. Reveal your will to me so that I can know what it is. Turn to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do what? That's what it's all about, folks. To make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Then he continues on by saying this. This is how it happens. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, that is revealing his will to you. That is the only right thing to do. And as I might add, that's the only basis for faith. That's the only basis for faith. Our faithfulness is defined by the will of God. Would you agree? Think about it. Can I say that I am faithful to God without being faithful to the will of God? What is faith but a response? Faith is responding to God. Responding to God, what do you mean? Well, be responding to what he shows you. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word. If I believe the word, then I respond to it. Then I become a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. I mean, you put yourself out there like real Bible faith is counting on God to do what he said. And what he said is his will. I believe you're holding a book that is a revelation of his will to you. It shows you which and how and when, what. It may not tell you who you're going to marry or who you should marry or who you should not marry. It may not tell you specifically what job you should not take or you better not take. It doesn't tell you where to go or where not to go. You have to learn that by relationship. You have to walk with the Lord and hear that voice hear that prompting or have that conscience bear witness with what you're hearing. Because you're going to have to make a decision. That decision is, is your faith in what you believe. If I'm going to believe God and what he says and be found faithful at the end, and there's no other way to please him, didn't he say then? Without faith, you can't please God. Then I'm going to have to learn what his will is, and that's the basis for my faith. And it's obviously the basis for my relationship to God. I sure hate to think I spent 40 or 50 years of my life in ministry for nothing. That I learned how to do things, that I was trained how to do things, and I did that seeking my reward, telling about all the things that I've done. Look what I've done. Look where I've gone. What do you mean tell me I'm not right? I do this, or I pray 15 hours a day, or I study 20 hours a day. So? So? Is that the will of God? Or is that what you're boasting of? How many of you know we have no boast? Turn to Luke 17. Luke 17, verse 5 said, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, increase our faith. Why why you wanna well well here now wait a minute, before you become great in faith and people marvel at all the things your faith is doing, let me give you some information, Jesus says. If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say to this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Wow, that's what I want. That's a ministry there. Okay, keep going. Verse 7, but which of you having a servant, now how many, wait a minute, a servant, a servant. There's two main words in the Bible for servant. One means to be a slave. Now, a servant can either be a hired servant. You can be hired out to be the gardener or you can serve by the, if you were in a big house and All the stuff you see on TV with, you know, the butler comes up. These people are servants, but they're paid to serve. They can be fired and hired, and they can leave. But back in the days of slavehood, when there were slaves in, in this country, to our demise, a slave was property. A slave had no rights of his own or her own. They had no opinion. They were given something to do, and that's all they did. They didn't own anything. They couldn't go anywhere except to work and back to their cabin. Didn't matter what you said to them. Didn't matter how you treated them. Didn't matter if they died all of a sudden or if you killed one of them. It just it doesn't matter. There's no law against that. They were slaves. You see a picture of a slave as uh, without rights someone who is at the full disposal of their master owner or their Lord now I think that's our word that we're using here and it's one who is in a permanent relation of servitude to their owner now listen If I commit myself to the Lord, a living sacrifice, I then become the Lord's servant. Are you here? Not on my terms, but on his terms. I have no right to tell God how he should or should not use me. You agree with that? That's not my right to tell God how far he should let me go and how far he shouldn't. I'm here to do as he pleases. Now he said, but which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come in from the field, go and sit down to meet? He didn't say, boy, you worked hard today, go sit down. He didn't say that. And we're talking about a servant now in the sense of ownership and so forth, servitude. And will he not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup? And gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and then afterwards thou shalt eat and drink Doth he think that servant Does he think that servant because that servant Did what he was supposed to do Verse 9 says I trow not How many of you know that trow is not a word we use today <laughs> Y'all don't trow enough See, the word troll means to think. I think not, he said. I think not. Now listen, verse 10. This looms over the church like a weight. It's not going away. So likewise, so likewise you sitting here this morning, me standing here, when you and I shall have done all those things which are commanded us, this is what we should say about all the good hard work and effort and years and time that we spent doing it. Aren't I something? No. He says, when we've done all those things that are commanded us, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done that which was our duty to do. We have only done that which was Our duty to do you go along with that then is there anybody in this room that God has used that should ever be exalted now we're all affected by somebody and we do appreciate that I know that I think God would want us to to appreciate esteem those highly who have labored in the word you know that and give honor to those to whom honor is due but when it comes to boast and the recognition of a man's worth before God on the basis of how far he went and how long he went and how much he did, how many books he wrote and how many hours and souls he led to the Lord. No man has a boast of that because God could say to that servant who did his will, what did you do that you were not equipped to do? And what did you do in and of yourself? You did nothing. Everything you did is a result of the work that God did in you. Remember that? God is at work in you. Everything you did was because of what God did in you and the work that you then did when you went out and to let that go. It was God doing that. It was God who saved the people. It was God who did the works. It was God who worked the miracles. It was God. Everything came from him. You can do nothing of yourself. Doesn't the Bible say that? You can do nothing without him. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Well, we can all do a lot of things. But you can do nothing that gains a reward from God unless the Lord does it. That's the quiet moment. That's when you're by yourself. And you're pondering your life in light of all these years. And you realize that every good thing that's ever been done in your life, every soul that's been brought out of darkness or been helped, you didn't do it. God did it. He used you. You have no praise coming. Your picture doesn't need to hang on a wall with a light over at night so we can see it day or night. You are still... An unprofitable servant because you've only done what was commanded. You did nothing on your own. You've only done what the Lord told you to do. That's all you could do. Turn to Matthew 7. Oh, what a difficult place. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, What a challenging message, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And when he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we come to these words. Verse 21, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's disturbing. Now, listen, all of you, how many people with good, honest hearts say, Lord, Lord? That's all they know. They have not really wanted to know more. They've been very comfortable in a complacent situation. They never were inspired to know more. They saw themselves as a important part of the church and the church ought to be glad they got me and they better try to keep me. That's not what the Bible says. Just what the Bible says. Whew. He said, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but who will? Who will? Read it. But he that doeth the will of my Father. Let me ask you all a question. Can you be a Christian and make it to heaven without doing the will of God? I don't think so. Not if I believe this, otherwise I've got to do like religion does and try to explain this away and change what this means so that nobody is bothered by it. But not only does it mean we have to do the will of God, we have to find out what it is for us, for our lives. And if you don't care about, I don't like all that teaching and stuff, then how in the world will you ever know? I mean, if you can't relate to each other, you probably don't relate to God. How then will you ever know the will of God? You can be religious all your life. I was, my family, my parents, my, all my ancestors were church people. All of them were. We sang the hymns. We could sing them with our eyes closed and a hymn book in his pocket of the pew. Memorize them. It's a part of our thinking. But the will of God, oh, I guess I'm doing it. Yeah, I guess. I don't even know what it is, but I assume that what we're doing is They don't even know. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Jesus said that in Luke 6, 45. Why are you calling me Lord, and you're not doing what I'm telling you to do? That's one of those quiet moments when you're alone, pondering your life, the worth of it, or the unprofitability of it, the realization that you're nothing, you never were probably never will be. You were never good at anything in the natural. I came to this conclusion. The only thing I was ever good at in my whole life, the only thing I was ever good at that I thought I was good at was music. Music. I could sing with harmony. I could play instruments. I could read the music. I was a ninth grader in high school. I Came in third place in a state tournament and the music played a baritone. I did all of that. I mean, it was the easiest thing I ever did. It just came. I laid all of that down and walked away from it. And I don't know in my life anything else I've ever done that I was good at. Anything. A-N-Y-T-H-I-N and there's a G on the end of anything. But it's helped me in the sense that The only thing I want to do now is the will of God. This is fresh. I just want to know and do the will of God. Because that's the only thing that's really going to matter. Because notice again, again, Matthew 7. He said, not everybody that says to me, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, but he that doeth the will of my Father. Now. The protest of that, as the church would protest today in verse 22, is many will say to me in that day, but Lord, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not fair. Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not flowed into gifts here or something like that? Have we not brought a word to your people, a revelation from the Lord or something to your people? Come on, Lord. I mean, we did that. And have we not in thy name cast out devils? Well, that's good. And in thy name done many wonderful works, miracles. Most of us never have seen one. They did a lot of them. They were way beyond us. They were probably saying, are you telling me that's not the will of God? I'll tell you what I believe he says. No, what you did was the will of God to cast out devils, prophesy, lay hands on the sick and so forth. Yes, that was. But you, you as a person, you as an individual, your relationship with God, the knowledge of his will and the humility that it'll bring into your life as it brings you down to where you're a functioning part of a church. You didn't have it. Look what he said in the next verse, verse 23. And then I will profess unto them, what? I never knew you. I never knew you. Is that possible that all of us ministerial hobnobs trying to tell about how great we are, printing in the paper how great we are and how many we won to the Lord and how big and how much. Is that just our reward for right now? Because what has anybody in here done as a servant of the Lord that God did not do? If it was good, God did it. Man, I preached, and when I preached, Lord, they just fell on their faces. Whoa! Did you know that you did not make them fall on their faces? Let me tell you how I know that you didn't do that. Go to them all and go in and let them see your face, and they'll probably lock you up. In that kind of an environment where God uses his people, God does wonderful things. But it's best for a man to realize that you're an unprofitable servant. You dreamed up nothing. You did nothing. God himself did it. And that's the only way it worked. So who do you say will be in the kingdom? Those who do his will. Turn to Matthew 12 and verse 50. This is going to define your relationship with God. Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Does your Bible say something near that? Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same, that person is, related to me in my family. The same, he said, is my brother and my sister and my mother. And Mark adds a couple more to it. Who did Jesus say he related to? Those that do his will, didn't he? Many people hear it, but many are called. Only a few people seem to really want to live this way. And I believe those are the ones that will in the end be known and be seen as those in his kingdom. This is not an easy message. For me, a lot of this is troubling. Not only because you know you take stock of your life. I think we all should I started there. I'll finish there We should all take stock of ourselves You shouldn't spare yourself Just like you said at the Lord's table last week. We were teaching on 1st Corinthians 11 You know the Bible said if a man would judge himself He would not be judged The word judge is a word which means to distinguish to look at all sides Spare yourself not. Don't justify any of your flaws. Don't justify your mistakes or that mouth of yours. Don't justify it. Or that attitude this week at the grocery store, or the parking lot, or behind the snow plow. Don't justify it. Reach a verdict against it. He said if a man would judge himself, he should not be judged. You reach a verdict against yourself, and God will not have to reach one against you. Look at yourself carefully. Examine yourself. See if you're even in the faith. Measure yourself by the word. It's a plumb bob. It hangs not only in the church but in your life. It's square. Never varies. It just hangs straight. And the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ can only be achieved when you see that and you want that. That's the will of God. That's what a servant does. How do we get off track then? Well, that'll have to be wait for next week. How did the church historically from years back, how do we get off track to where the will of God is an option or a good thing but not necessary? Where did that happen? Well, it happened in the very beginning And we'll go there next week. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, look upon us, minister to us, deal with us, leave nobody alone. Cause us to hear what you're saying all through the day. Continue to teach us your way. Reveal your paths to us. Lord, there's time left in this world that we have to prepare ourselves for the Lord's coming. I just ask it, at least in this body of believers here, in this particular church, we truly, 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 truly are less and the least of everybody else. We have no boast here. We have no claims. We have no beauty that we can point people to. We have nothing. But you meet us here. You've inspired us, and you have blessed us. And my prayer in the name of Jesus, that you would reveal your perfect will to us individually and as a church so that we never miss it in this life. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Would you stand to your feet? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before.